So we're in a series that we're ending uh, this morning. Uh, it's a Lent series, so we're in the, the last week of Lent. Next week will be Palm Sunday, and Lent is a, is a time of fasting and reflection modeled after the tradition and the experience of Jesus in the desert for 40 days before entering into his public ministry. And this series is called Failing at Sin. And the idea behind this series is that you're probably not that good at being bad. You see, we've, we've been talking about how we have this narrative in our culture and in, in, our, in our minds and our heads that we're tempted to do these bad things and that these bad things would really give us what we were looking for and what we wanted out of life and satisfy us, but we can't do them because they're bad. And what, what we are proposing and examining through the texts of the scriptures through this series is the idea that it's not, that's not actually true. It's not that we can't do the bad thing that we want to just because it's bad, but actually because doing those things don't solve any of our problems, they lead us right back to where we started, looking at the same problems that have either intensified or are exactly the same with just a more burdens of shame and guilt upon us. And we've, we've uh, journeyed through different parts of the scriptures in order to approach these ideas. We started with Jesus's temptation in the desert where he was tempted to turn stone to bread. He was tempted to believe that he needed to act in a way that was contrary to the provisions of God, to believe the lie that God had put him in a situation and did not plan on providing for him in that situation. So he was tempted to produce for himself the things that God was going to do for him. And we are tempted to do the same things in a way that is harmful to us and others around us. Uh, then we moved on and we looked at a passage where we saw Jesus grieving over the people of Jerusalem and longing to gather them as a hen gathers her chicks in, under her wing. And we were approaching and, and fighting against the idea that God looks at us like the mean taskmaster expecting us to measure up and grimacing when we don't. And seeing instead, first in the image of Jesus, a God who is not even just okay with grief, but who runs into grief, who, who grieves and is sorrowful and has sadness over the state of things and over the state of the ways that we have self-sabotaged our lives and then found that we also have permission to grieve as well. And then last week we looked at the very famous story often dubbed the prodigal son about two children estranged from one another and estranged from their father who were looking for a way to come back home, to realize that what they needed was not to continue to refuse taking responsibility for their own neediness, but to bring their neediness to one another and to God and find that God was ready to provide for what they needed and come home. This morning, we end this series in a place that is incredibly fitting and that I'm very 
happy and glad to get to talk about, and that's what happens on the other side of dealing with sin and confessing and stepping out of the denial of the ways we've tried to manage our lives and that hasn't worked for us. And we begin to talk honestly. We begin to confess openly about the ways that we are limited, that we are not able to achieve the things that we want to do. We're not able to have the relationships the way we want to have them. We're not able to manage our lives and our families the way that we wish that we could and that the world is in turmoil because we have not owned up to those things. And so we're here in this amazing passage from Isaiah where we get to look at this progression of coming to a to grips with reality and then being able to be open to what we see that God might be doing in the midst of our confession. Something new. The sermon, in fact, is titled uh, today, Remembering Newness. But before we get into that, I want to talk about this word confession, because all of this hinges on the way we think about confession. You see, there are an infinite number of people out there who are happy to offer you a new life, a new story, a way to forget about what happened before and get some new shiny future without the necessity of confessing what's actually going on and has been going on in your life and the world all along. You don't have to remember any of those old things. You don't have to deal with the consequences of your actions. You can just have something new with no consequences. It's not true. It's not just true for church people either. It's just not true. So we have to deal with this idea of confession. What comes to mind when you think of the word to confess? Traditionally, what comes to my mind and to many people's minds is to talk about something that you've done wrong, right? Say, I've done something that's wrong and I want to admit that. And that is absolutely a critical part of confession. But I want to talk about confession in a slightly broader way, a way that's closer to the type of confession that we find in the Bible and with the prophets, And that type of confession is something we've really been exploring and talking about throughout this series. And that is to own up to the reality of our lives. To admit that maybe we didn't do something in quotations that is wrong or that is sin, but to confess the ways we can't do the things that we wish we were able to do. That we're limited, that we're needy, that we cannot achieve the goals that we think or desire that we should be able to, that that we can't be the parents we want to be, that we just mess up, that we can't be the children we want to be or the student we want to be or the worker, or maybe we can't work those late nights that our colleague does and climb the ladder the way that they do, or we can't uh, 
navigate the complex relationship between friends and economic prosperity and housing and all of the dynamics that make for what we call in America the good life. This is what I mean when I talk about confession and often what the prophets are talking about when they talk about confession. So this text from Isaiah, the traditions of scripture and life itself will lead you to this conclusion. It will. The difference in what happens in people when they're led to this conclusion is this. They either double down on the things that aren't working and just try doing them harder, just do them more. Just like get some good tips and tricks about how to do them better, follow the right Instagram profiles, read the right self-help books, listen to the right podcasts, and go about continuing to run your head into this wall just with maybe a new hairstyle or a new product under your arm, a new laptop perhaps, a new car, or to confess, to Be willing to say, I'm limited. This isn't working out for me. Maybe I should just feel sad about this. That life isn't what I hoped it would be, or I can't achieve what I want to achieve. When we do that, we can discover a future that is different from the past and is not bound by the unsolvable problems that we all have. We can remember newness. Here's here's what I mean. In this passage, the prophet starts by recounting the acts of the God of Israel, Yahweh. He he says, you know, that in in one translation or a more literal translation, instead of a, a way through the sea, a road through the sea. Let's look at it. Verse 16, it's on the screen here. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. So Isaiah is calling to the mind of his listeners a time when his people generationally, uh, years and years ago, were trapped in relentless and ongoing slavery. And then something that had never happened and has never happened since happened. That God led his people through water as a dry ground road, the parting of the Red Sea, and laid waste to the oppressive army of Pharaoh. So he's recalling this moment And then after that, Isaiah says something startling and defiantly hopeful. He says, forget the former things. God is doing something new. But but Isaiah, were you not just asking us to remember? If, If you're telling us to forget the former things, 
What is it that's going on here? You see, when we remember past events, we use those memories in the past to judge what can happen in the future. We'll say things like, I'll believe it when I see it. Or that's not gonna happen. I could just tell you right now. I've lived a long time and that ain't gonna happen. Right? We, we, we truncate the, the possibility that the future can hold anything except for more of the events that have happened in the past. But Isaiah's listeners needed something different than what happened in the past, just as we do today, because they were not enslaved to Egypt, but they were in something called exile in Babylon. They had been living, that many of them, their entire lifetimes in a different culture. It was a giant empire that was concerned with its own prosperity, the constant duplication and building up of its military might to put the people of Israel to work just thinking about only one thing, the success of Babylon, the, uh, uh, the expansion of its, uh, its property, of its, of its uh, borders, of the expanding of its military, of the expansion of the consumable goods to spend all their time thinking about the nows of Babylon, uh, the nows of the United, I mean Babylon. You see, the listeners of Isaiah's words were not having their backs broken making bricks for Pharaoh, trapped in slavery, they were immersed in a different way of thinking. They were immersed in the king's words of Babylon, of the city's prosperity, of the gods, and they were captured by a small idea of what reality could be from the liturgies of the empire of Babylon with the objectives of consuming and producing in order to consume more and more, to make the rich richer and to protect the rich more and more with more and more rules and more and more military and more and more police. So the narrative that these people are under that Isaiah is speaking to is be afraid. We've got to keep producing. We've got to keep making. There's not going to be enough. So in this context, these people living in exile, living away from their home, away from the memories of what God had given them, of how God had proven himself to be able to do new things that had never been done before and to provide without an oppressive king or empire that was in charge of everything. He calls his people to remember not the events themselves. Hear me now. 
This is, if you don't, if you don't get this, nothing else I'm going to say is going to make much sense. He's not calling them, I think, to remember the events that, okay, now God is going to do what he did before and part the Red Sea, but they are to remember that God does new things. No, I'm all by myself up here. No amens, no nothing. This is good news. This is the good news that when our imagination has been exhausted, that when we look to our political leaders and we see the world spiraling towards a terrible conclusion, that we still know and serve a God who can do something new. We're not going to get that from our senators. We're not going to get that from our presidents. Their answers are always going to be the same. Make the military bigger. Increase more taxes or decrease taxes on certain groups of people. It's going to be to buy more stuff, get more things, expand our borders to take over more of the world because we're the ones who figured it out. Meanwhile, the earth can't even breathe and things are catching on fire everywhere because it's too hot and the ocean levels are rising and we're just being told, buy more stuff and it'll make you happy. We need a God that can do something new because we're in trouble, people, if we, if we continue to get caught up in the narratives of Babylon. Isaiah continues after he reminds us that God does new things. And then he asks us this question. It's springing up, he says, but will you, what does it say in that text? What does it say there? Will you what? Perceive it. Will you see it? This is the same thing that Jesus does as he walks around. He says, there's the kingdom of God over there. It's right here in front of you. It's right here in your midst. Do you see it? Do you perceive it? Are you aware of what's happening? Or are you continuing to believe only what the empire says, only about the here and now and the exact moment you're in and trying to satiate your immediate desires and not being able to imagine that the future could be something more than what today is. I've been thinking about this idea of newness for, for a long time. And one of the things that I have been am looking at and thinking about is this theory about new ideas being adopted. Some of you may have learned about this, possibly in a marketing class or some way to learn how to sell people more stuff. But it's called the diffusion of innovation theory. Anybody ever heard of that? We're gonna put it up on the screen here. This is about how the population in general responds to new ideas, okay? When something new happens or a new invention is come up with or a new idea is discovered, okay? So here's what happens. The innovators, the people who come up with new ideas or are given new ideas by a divine source where our word genius comes from, to be given ideas by a spirit, Isaiah getting his idea of newness from the spirit of God, that's 2.5% of the population. 
probably a lot less of the percentage of church attenders. I'm just guessing. And then those innovators share their ideas and there's about 13.5% of the population that are early adopters of the ideas. So right now we're working with 16% of the whole population when there's an innovation. That means a new way to solve an old problem, something new, right? And so I'm not gonna go through this whole chart, but you can see kind of this bell curve here that as time progresses, more and more people, uh, they, they start to adapt this new idea. Like electricity is an example. When electricity was first being developed and light bulbs and things like that, the majority of the population were saying, that's terrible, that's scary. Like what about, what about gas lamps? Like those are really great. Like we're choking to death and dying on the fumes, but what about the whale blubber industry? Like what are those workers going to do? And there was literally a guy like shocking animals, like inviting people to this big event where he would shock animals and try to kill bigger and bigger animals with electricity just to show how dangerous electricity was, right? And I wonder when we, as Christians, when we remember the past, but we expect that God only lives in the past or only operates like he did in the past, that the church should only do what it's always done. If we end up as what they call in the scientific uh, community, laggards, we miss out on the new thing that God is doing. Do you perceive it? Isaiah says, okay, you can, you can pull that down. How then, how then is a prophet like Isaiah or a pastor for that matter to lead a congregation of people into something new when it seems so unlikely? Seems so unlikely that if 2.5% are the innovators and only 13.5% of the population are the early adapters, what's the chance that when something new comes up, you can lead a people into that newness and that the world can see something it's never seen before that's driven by the Spirit of God? I was talking with uh, Tom first. We were, uh, as a group, we were planning uh, we we're planning some Good Friday service stuff. And he said he got into an argument with this Old Testament uh, scholar. Um, and Tom's an Enneagram 8 too. So, you know, that's, a, that's what it is if you're familiar with Enneagram. Um, and he said they were arguing that the, the Old Testament scholar was arguing with him that the prophets were all about the past and, and having people go back to doing the things from the past. And Tom was like, no, it's not. It's, it's the opposite. It's that the prophets are actually drawing people to the future and something new. And then the subtext of their conversation, and maybe it came to just regular text at some point, was that the prophets are conservative. No, the prophets are progressive and liberal. And that was the argument that they were having. Well, at um, at Christ City, we, we have this, this um, symbol of 
the necessity of understanding both, just like Isaiah does in just a few verses, in these few poetic verses, he merges together the conservative and the progressive, the the priestly tradition and the prophetic tradition. And we do that in this graphic called the kite and the flyer. And when we talk about it, a lot of times we talk about that some people are like the person standing on the ground the flyer of the kite, and that that person uh, is represented by the priests and the stewards of the traditions of Scripture. So they're going to be the ones to keep us grounded and call us back to the things that are important in the traditions and say, well, does it say it there? And let's look back and let's be more careful about where we go with this. And this is usually also a certain personality type that can keep the others of the us who want to make quick decisions fast, keep us from flying away off into oblivion. And those of us, so you can, you can go to the next slide. Those of us that are represented by the kite are those prophets and mystics who are connected to the tradition in part by our relationships with those who are the priests and the stewards, and yet we see something that is beyond that. We see something new that God might be doing. And, and, here's, and here's what our culture can't and won't and will never understand, that the church has to lead the way on or we will self-implode as a human race. That it's always both. It's always two things. And they are not to be diametrically opposed to one another. But they would be tethered together with the kite pushing up higher into the air, showing new possibilities, spinning around in the wind. And the priest and the steward holding the line and keeping us grounded, keeping us connected to what is and what has been. And those things expressing themselves, not just between two different people, but within the same exact person and in the same exact traditions. And that is why Isaiah can say this. Remember what God did in the Exodus and then forget it. Because it's God we are remembering right now because God is about to do something new and God has to do something new. But will you perceive it? When he says that word, he says that word about not remembering. It's a little bit different in the Hebrew. Zakhar is is the word. And it says, uh, it's literally translated, do not call to mind. Do not call to mind. So it's, it's an intentional holding of the memory, but not allowing that memory to dictate the only thing you can imagine for the future. But this cannot be primarily an intellectual exercise to anticipate the new of God. It's actually 
heart exercise, a spirit exercise, because it all hinges on our ability to confess. To confess. Isaiah was trying to wake people up to what was happening in the empire of Babylon. You're going around, you're buying, uh, you're buying your homes, you're trading your goods and services, you're upgrading your lifestyle, all the while Babylon is going to come down. And God is in the future. And God is not controlled or at the service of the empire. Never has, never will be. Some of my passion around this right now, this desire for newness, it, it, comes, it comes from some, some very real things going on in our world right now. One of the things that has some of the biggest implications for our future is that in 2020, there were huge fires everywhere all over the world because temperatures are increasing, things are getting drier, uh, it's getting hotter. And those things are changing our world so rapidly, climate change. Um, there is a, a, a um, report that I strongly suggest everybody take some time to read and read others like it. Um, the, the report I'm going to read a little bit from as we get towards the end of this sermon is the ProPublica is the name of the uh, newsroom. It's a nonprofit newsroom. And they developed this report uh, in uh, partnership with the New York Times um, for the, the data because it was too big of a thing for them to, to do on their own. And they compiled some predictions from 2040 to 2060. So starting in less than 20 years from now about what's going to happen in our world, the future of our climate and how that's gonna impact the United States. And I just wanna read a couple of things to you. And I wanna, right before I read that, I wanna say, I wanna say this. Um, there, there is, I, I cannot open this Bible without having to address the very real things of the world, because that's what the writers of the Bible did. I say that mainly not for people in this room specifically, but for people who have heard others tell them, you should just preach about the Bible or religious things. Well, then you need a different Bible in order to do that. So predictions from 2040 to 2060, there's this thing called wet bulb. And it's when heat meets excessive humidity and the body can no longer cool itself by sweating. The combination creates wet bulb temperatures where 82 degrees can feel like Southern Alabama on its hottest day. Lord have mercy, I have been in Alabama in the summer. And if that heat doesn't get you, the fire ants will. making it dangerous to work outdoors and for children to play school sports. At wet bulb temperatures increase, as wet bulb temperatures increase 
even higher, so will the risk of heat stroke and even death. By mid-century, that's 2050, heat and humidity in Missouri will feel like Louisiana, Louisiana does today. While some areas we don't usually think of as humid, like southwestern Arizona, we will see soaring wet bulb temperatures because of factors like sun angle, wind speed, and cloud cover reaching to high temperatures, according to Hannah Hess of the Rhodium Group. So that's one thing that's on the way. Another thing is sea levels. Sea levels are rising and they're predicting this on the rise of sea levels. The share of property submerged by high tides will increase dramatically, 24 to 2060, affecting a small sliver of the nation's land, but a disproportionate share of its population. Some 50 million Americans live in eight of the largest U.S. metro areas, Miami, New York, and Boston among them, which all lie in some of the most affected counties in the United States. So this is the, this is the projection that from 2040 to 2060, those cities and some of the other, the coastal cities around the edges, sea levels are rising, and if they continue on the trajectory that they are, they will become uninhabitable for at least 50 million of the people that live there, which means they have to go live somewhere else. Crop yield. With rising temperatures, it will become more difficult to grow food. Corn and soy are the most prevalent crops in the U.S. and the basis for the livestock, feed, and other staple foods, and they have critical economic significance. Because of their broad regional spread, they offer the best proxy for predicting how farming will be affected by rising temperatures and changing water supplies and economic damage. Rising energy costs, lower label productivity because it's too hot and people are having to run away, Pro poor crop yields and increasing crime are among the climate-driven elements that will increasingly drag on the U.S. economy, eventually taking a financial toll that exceeds that from the COVID-19 pandemic. These are the projections. And as we've been talking about, you can live in denial. I wouldn't count on the empire of the United States ever coming fully to terms with this because that would mean they weren't in control. And they're not, and they never were. That's the story of the Bible. These empires are not in control and they don't know how to future. They don't know how to imagine something that cannot yet exist. And for that reason, the people of God have to have to wake up, have to become early adopters, have to become innovators, have to say, God, I want to know what you're doing now that is new. God will change the circumstances and the environment around us, but will we be ready to see? Will we just end up saying, the devil you do, the devil you do knows better than the one you don't? Will we continue to be lost in the obsessions of the now? The latest workout fads, the latest new products and fast fashion, and how to re reverse aging by another five years. All the while, we're waiting on a huge climate uh, migration in our country because we won't think of something new. I've seen this 
in my own life in just so many different kinds of ways. I'll just give you one simple personal example. I wasn't willing to confess, and I didn't really know how. It wasn't just that I wasn't willing. I didn't know how to confess when I needed something or didn't know something. So I would argue with my wife and I would feel like I had to have an answer. So the argument would keep going because we would just keep arguing back and forth. And I learned through life teaching me a bunch of hard lessons and people helping me and God helping me um, to say, I don't know, to confess. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. Or yeah, you're probably right. Or some combination of those things. I don't know. I'm not right. You probably are. I don't know. (laughs) Amen. That's right. Somebody has learned a lesson in marriage over there, Kevin Matisse. (laughs) And this opened up new possibilities. This is what This is what Isaiah tells to his his listeners after he talks about this perception of something new. As we close here, this last part of the scripture, he says, and this is God's voice saying, I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. That God is one who makes life out of the wasteland, does something new that cannot be controlled or contained by anything else. Do you want to be a part of that type of tradition, that type of of understanding of who God is, that God could do something new. I do. I guess I'm still up here all by myself. Somebody give me an amen. Amen. Ultimately, what Isaiah was trying to do was convince the Israelites that they were not at home, that they were exiles, that they should feel uncomfortable under the narrative of Babylon. And if he could not convince them of that, they would see no desire for anything new. And so for us, for our Christian community, for all the baptized of our country and our world, I pray that we would realize we are not citizens of our respective countries first and foremost, but we are citizens of, get ready, it's your chance to say amen right here, the kingdom of heaven. So we must confess our neediness, our lack of understanding, our desire to only focus on the gratifications of the now, our sins of greed and willful ignorance so that we can become enlightened to the new thing that God is doing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you for hope. Thank you for courage from those who have gone before us in the scriptures and in our world. Give us courage and hope and love. Amen.